SCP-4784 Nature abhors a vacuum tube. Object class, Euclid. Special containment procedures. Two undercover security officers stationed at Provisional Containment Area 94 will conduct perimeter checks at dawn and dusk. In the event of suspected damage or trespass, staff will equip Scramble, footnote 1, Scramble sets are computer-assisted eyepieces which automatically identify and obscure hostile memes and cognito hazards before they reach the viewer's optic nerve, gear before conducting an advanced sweep, and re-establishing containment. When SCP-4784-1 is not undergoing testing, the anomaly is to be concealed beneath a weighted blackout tarp, secured at each corner by a steel peg. Crossing the 10-meter safety demarcation line without scramble protection is strictly prohibited. Personnel with histories of depression, dissociation, and or suicidal ideation are strongly discouraged from entering Area 94. Description SCP-4784 is a 1-hectare parcel of land 13 kilometers southeast of Orner's Crossing, Ontario, fully enclosed by the Area 94 perimeter fence. Most territory within SCP-4784 is dense with trees, with the exception of a meadow at the approximate center of the property, 30 meters across at its widest point. As surrounding terrain is dominated by forest, brush, and swampland, this area can be reached solely by controlled roadway, while the interior meadow is accessible by footpath. SCP-4784-1 is an anomalous art installation at the center of the meadow, angled away from the secure point of entry. The focal point of the piece is an artificial rendering of a solid-state console television with a 32-inch color screen and integrated speakers. It is positioned on an inclined stone plinth, three feet at its highest elevation, surrounded by a bed of artificial red roses. While all of the above objects are superficially identical to mundane analogs, they are completely immune to erosion by weather, resist attempts at manual interference, and defy material analysis. Additionally, the articulated dials in the television's control panel serve no function, and the thorns in the artificial roses have sharpness comparable to razor wire. These anomalies can thus be described as simulacra, creative representations of real objects. The television screen integrated in SCP-4784-1 will remain inert unless the anomaly detects physical motion within a radius of 50 meters, at which point it will enter its active state. The anomaly begins displaying a multitude of audiovisual patterns coordinated with interlocking anomalous effects, broadly designated SCP-4784-2. Phase. Attract sequence. Sustained burst of audiovisual static interspersed with assorted still images of landscapes predominantly forest, arctic desert, and ocean scenes. Extreme close-ups of human features, mineral compositions, and rendered fractals. Effect. Any unprotected observer with a clear line of sight are affected by mild compulsion, footnote 2, analogous to the high-place phenomenon, HPP, a momentary urge to jump from precarious heights experienced throughout the general human population to draw nearer. Anyone approaching within 5 meters of the screen will become an instance of SCP-4784-2 Sigma, vulnerable to the anomaly's primary sequence. Beyond this stage, 
instances will not look away unless a third party physically intervenes, breaking the trance. Phase. Opening sequence. Fade through black to resolve on a title card. The text reads, Unwinding. A film by the developer. The background is a swimming textured field of blue and green, interspersed with random noise. Effect. SCP-4784-2 Sigma will adopt a stationary position, sitting or standing, and maintain visual contact with the screen. Phase. Primary sequence. Semi-individualized presentation of still images and video. 5 minutes and 23 seconds in length. For the first two minutes, SCP-4784-2 displays reactive visuals based on the subject's personal life, cultural background, and historical period. After the first 46 seconds, these are rapidly and increasingly juxtaposed with renderings of human suffering, violence and social neglect, footnote 3, derived from newsreel footage, documentaries, and other material available to the civilian population, interspersed with images of undisturbed natural habitats. After 2 minutes and 23 seconds, the timescale increases dramatically, with stylized visuals alluding to the passage of evolutionary, geologic, and cosmological time. Recorded imagery alludes to the evolution of single-celled organisms, footnote 4, 3.2 to 3.5 billion years ago, the formation of the Milky Way galaxy, footnote 5, 7.1 to 10.5 billion years ago, and the cosmic dark age. Footnote 6, beginning approximately 377,000 years after the Big Bang, before the formation of the first stars. Effect. 1 minute 20 seconds. Third-party intervention is rendered impossible, as SCP-4784-2 Sigma begins to fade from material existence. This effect begins in the head and torso, which become increasingly translucent, spreading outwardly to the extremities in irregular waves. 2 minutes 31 seconds, SCP-4784-2 Sigma begins to de-spool along their central axis in a manner similar to textiles or film reels being unwound. An expanding continuous strip of the body becomes entirely translucent, while the remainder is gradually overwritten by static. 3 minutes 52 seconds, at approximately 30% visibility, SCP-4784-2 Sigma begins to ripple and tear vertically in a manner similar to television scan lines. This effect intensifies until SCP-4784-2 Sigma dematerializes completely at 5 minutes and 23 seconds. Phase. Concluding Sequence. Iris out on a blooming rose, surrounded by an expanding ring of cursive text. If only it were the end. Are we cool yet? Fade to black. Effect? None. Phase. Secondary sequence. Iris in on a rose dying, then coming back to life in reverse. Individualized presentation displays an accelerated reverse speed, compressed to 92 seconds in length. Effect? None. Instances of SCP-4784-2 Sigma interrupted prior to the primary sequence experience severe disorientation, mild derealization, and depressive symptoms for approximately three hours, but suffer no long-term damage. 
Despite the implication that dematerialized instances of SCP-4784-2 Sigma are intended to rematerialize after the secondary sequence, such an effect has never been observed by Foundation staff. SCP-4784-3 is a simulated document on the outer perimeter of the meadow, adjacent to the entry footpath. The object physically resembles a leather-bound guestbook with glossy paper resting atop a pedestal in an open position. However, the anomaly does not have any pages beyond its surface. SCP-4784-3 will update with the full legal names of any dematerialized instance of SCP-4784-2 Sigma. Upon containment, it carried the following message. Unwinding. Featuring special guest stars. Clementia Schwager, Tony Vitella, Kathleen Stitch, David Aylmer Brock, Devin Sundy. I didn't realize, I'm so sorry. I don't want to be cool. Goodbye, Anna Bajarski. Prior to its acquisition by the Foundation, SCP-4784 was owned by Apillionaire Acquisitions, a defunct front company tied to anomalous artist collective Are We Cool Yet? The five guest stars listed above have been linked to various AWCY cells across North America. Schwager, Brock, and Sundy were all graduates of Deer College and lived together in three Portlands until their disappearance in 2008. This was previously attributed to death by suicide due to a co-signed, handwritten message found in their home. According to Extent Records, Anna Bajarski was a sophomore student at Deer College until she stopped attending Ann Art classes in 2008. Bajarski was struggling in all her coursework and was behind on tuition payments at the time of her disappearance. Other identifying information pertaining to Bajarski is missing from her student file, and no photographic evidence has been found in any Deer College yearbooks. At this time, the Foundation believes that Anna Bajarski, aka the developer, was a casualty of her own prototype at a closed exhibition facilitated by AWCY. Addendum 4784-1 Pre-Recovery Log Start Collection Tip The first evidence of SCP-4784 was discovered in a photo album assembled by Luther Stark, 1953-2015, an underground documentarian with known anartist ties. Stark's collection contained photographic and illustrative evidence of more than 30 anomalies, redacted of which were hitherto unknown to the Foundation. The album was recovered by members of Mobile Task Force Pi-1, City Slickers, following a telephone tip by Person of Interest 6966, footnote 7, Ren Masterson, aka Stake Shift, member of Group of Interest 5869, Gamers Against Weed, self-described indie librarian, on July 3rd, 2019. Begin call. Operator. You've reached the NYC information desk. How can I help you? Person of interest 6966. Hi, my name is Ren Masterson. Do you know the world-renowned writer Stephen King? Uh, actually, no. Bad idea. Ma'am? Nope, not a ma'am. This line does lost and found, right? Well, I've definitely found something. Sir, that's not a, not a sir either. Please stop guessing. I was going through the stacks in the NY Public Library, minding my own business, and this thing was on the shelf.
photo album really jumped out at me. Wow, this NSA shit takes a while, huh? Don't mind me. I'm just gonna start rattling off some names from this book. What? Lusa Bellicino, Taz018, The Spider and the Fly. Uh, a whole lot of these are assigned Are We Cool Yet? And most of them look unpleasant. Treachery of Euclid's, what the fuck is that? Uh, Magritte Pastiche, Weak, Professor Zanorf, well, he looked chill at least. I'm not sure what you... The operator is disconnected by Foundation AI, ATLS-12, which has traced the call to a payphone near the New York Public Library. Finally. Howdy, officers. There is an audible mechanical click. The rest of Person of Interest 6966's speech contains background noise, consistent with the mundane microcassette recording. Never thought this day would come. I've found something weird and artsy and interesting that is definitely not for public consumption. Hell, I don't even want it in my library, let alone the New York Public Library. But I can't return it to the shelf because that would be irresponsible and... I can't destroy it because this could obviously be useful to someone, and I have certain problems with book burners. It's a conundrum. Solution. Give it to y'all. Consider it a gift. Been hearing horror stories about janitors for more than a decade, but you're supposedly about containment and flipping through this book. I see things that should absolutely be contained if they aren't already. Maybe it'll help if you have an index. Even if this one is like Tourist Grandpa's Artsy Guide to Trigger Warnings. Yeesh. I'm going to bag this thing and leave it under the bench, right by this phone, and you can come get it. I'll be long gone, of course. I don't want you to grab me again. What, did you really think I wouldn't notice a fat 12-hour gap in my memory? I might be a little scatterbrained, but I'm not stupid. I'm actually quite careful, and to the best of my knowledge, there's only one thing that's really, truly missing from my collection. Given how I lost it, you'll have certainly got it packed away in a white box somewhere. Yeah? There's a quid pro quo, you see. I want my Dead Kennedys album back. There is another click, then a clattering noise as the phone is returned to its cradle. End call. Addendum. 4784 2. Interview log. Tilford's Folly. During initial containment, Foundation assets sought background information from local residents under the auspice of standard cover story 302, Legal Eagles, presenting themselves as representatives of the Ontario government. The following transcript summarizes a July 20th, 2019 interview between Agent Calvin Harris and by Felix Kipp, local branch librarian and amateur historian whose domicile was three kilometers west of SCP-4784. Begin log. Agent Calvin Harris. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me, Mr. Kip. Felix Kip. Oh, it's my pleasure. We don't get a lot of new faces in these parts, and my patrons have heard all the best stories already. Multiple times, in fact. <laughs> How can I help you today? Well, my ministry is looking into some land use and zoning irregularities. Do you know anything about a plot of land a few kilometers east of your property? It was purchased by a private company in 2008. 
You mean Telford's Folly? Sure. I would have never realized anyone owned it if not for Myra, the county clerk. She filled me in. At length. I wasn't aware it had a local name. What can you tell me about it? Nothing, really. Everyone knows it, but no one visits. Nothing to see. The terrain is too rough for development, so nobody bothers trying. Have you ever seen anyone in or around Tilford's Folly? Nope. Are you sure? I understand there are a lot of deer around here. Maybe hunters? <laughs> no, no, nobody hunts in Tilford's Folly. Not for a very long time. Actually, do you want to hear the story behind the name? I warn you, it's a little... strange? Absolutely. Weird tales are my favorite. To each their own. I prefer conventional mysteries over urban legends. They've got nice, neat endings. And this one is something of an anticlimax. <clears throat> Regardless, that place is called Tilford's Folly because of a murder back in the winter of 1886. Nobody around here actually knew the victim. He was just a dead body, blasted close range with a shotgun. Footnote 8, on or around February 3rd, 1886. Not even buried, just dumped on some fallen branches. It took them a while to figure out who he was, and even when they did, the circumstances didn't make a lot of sense. Samuel Tilford was an Englishman. He was privileged, if not truly affluent, but he was also a disaffected romantic type who wanted to make his own way. According to his family in Britain, Tilford corresponded with a landowner outside Orner's Crossing, a farmer who couldn't handle the whole job on his own and was looking for a partner. Tilford traveled to Canada, spent a few days in Niagara Falls, and then, boom, dead in the swamp like he dropped out of the sky. The next month, footnote 9, March 17, 1886, the police declared they'd nabbed the perpetrator, claimed that he lured Tilford to Orner's Crossing as a sort of investment scam. There was no farm, no house, just a victim with money and a man who wanted it. This man met up with Tilford, took him on a hunting trip to show him the surrounding territory, then blew his guts out and left him dead in the woods. There was a confession, a trial, a hanging, and a burial. Then, it was done. And there didn't seem to be any point to any of it. Hence, Tilford's folly. A senseless waste of life. Now, the strange part. Everyone knows about the murder around here because it's the most memorable chapter of our town's history. But, absolutely no one knows the murderer. I thought you said he was caught tried and executed. Oh, he was. It was in all the papers, along with details of the confession. Lots of people turned up to watch the hanging, and they all reported the same thing. The killer asphyxiated on the gallows. Footnote 10, April 1st, 1886. But in all the documents I've ever seen, primary and secondary, contemporaneous or otherwise, no one refers to the man by name. He's always the accused, or the murderer, or the convict. Photographs? Descriptions? None. Some claim that there was a painting, completed sometime after the trial, but nobody's ever found it. There'd be all sorts of a hullabaloo if they did. Was the killer buried near there? 
The body was supposedly interred in the prison cemetery, but all those graves are marked and he's not there. They did a site survey in the 60s. Nothing. So, there's no physical evidence of the perpetrator. What about the victim? Oh, there was definitely a victim. There were photographs of the scene and of the cadaver. That's how they identified Samuel Tilford, actually. They put a picture in the paper and... After he was recognized, they sent the body back to England, where he was buried in a family plot. What about Tilford's correspondence with the killer? The letters have never been found. It's all based on the family's written testimony. Huh. You weren't kidding about it being strange. Any theories? <laughs> well, of course, there are lots. All conjecture, none actually track. Some kind of cover-up? Obviously, since the killer has been so thoroughly erased, I'm tempted to draw a parallel between this and those awful shootings I see in the news. They censor the perpetrator's name to deny them glory or satisfaction or notoriety. This was only one death, though. Yes, that's where the parallel falls apart. The crime was shocking, but not truly grotesque, more inelegant. Leaving a corpse in a clearing when there's swamp and brush all around, that's rather clumsy. As for the parties involved, neither men were known in town, but Samuel Tilford was a novelty. An Englishman. Dead in Canada. Great Scott, by Jove, and other such things. The press was beside themselves and the authorities needed a perpetrator. Tilford certainly didn't shoot himself out in the swamp, dump his own body, and dispose of the gun. Now, I do like mysteries, but I don't have much regard for police. Don't make that face at me, young man. I know what I've seen, and I know what I've read. Police detectives close cases. It's what they do. They take a smattering of clues and try to piece them into a convenient hole, and it doesn't always work, because... They don't really care about being right, just being done. Whether they solve anything is another question entirely. I think the most plausible explanation for all this mystery is just, they caught someone. Not necessarily someone guilty, they beat a confession out of him. It didn't make sense, but it stuck, so he hanged. They may not have been ashamed, but they certainly covered their tracks. The interviewee's dog enters the room. Becoming aware of Agent Harris, the dog barks twice, then approaches. Oh, and here's Ben. <laughs> Sorry, don't mind him. He's friendly, just old and blind. No need to apologize, sir. May I pet him? By all means. Well, I very much appreciate the background information. I do have another question, though. Shoot. During our site survey, we found a junk heap out in Tilford's Folly. It was covered up with a tarp and a layer of netting, secured with cinder blocks. Oh, left by those absentee owners, no doubt. That's what we think. You're certain you've never seen anyone near that property? No hunters, no maintenance men, nobody? Absolutely. The view from my window is hardly universal, but it's generally pretty peaceful. Not a lot of movement over there, aside from deer, squirrels, and birds. See... That's very odd because the property was purchased in 2008. The tarp and net are weathered, but they're definitely not that old. In fact, according to a tag in the lining, the tarp was made in 2012. 
Huh. Are you suggesting that someone's been wandering around out there? Heavens, I really ought to lock my doors. Ben isn't a very good guard dog. End log. Closing statements. The above historical details regarding Telford's folly have been independently corroborated by Foundation researchers. The 1886 death of Samuel Tilford and the murderer's subsequent capture and execution were extensively documented in the contemporary press, yet no documentary or material evidence of the killer's identity has been found. Felix Kipp died in a household accident three days after his interview with Agent Harris. Forensic specialists ruled the incident non-anomalous, and the Foundation has since acquired the property as a discrete observation post overlooking Area 94. Addendum 4784-3. Memorandum. Backscatter. Our theory is that Tilford's folly is the narrative backscatter from a vastly overpowered pataphysical weapon. I can't provide you with the full and thorough explanation of how it works because said knowledge would probably kill us too. Here's a nice safe analogy instead. Imagine a pistol. Pick it up and put it to your temple and pull the trigger. You are dead. End of scenario. Now, obviously you aren't dead because this is a thought experiment. But what if you don't know that? What if this takes place within a simulation so perfect you fervently and completely believe in your own death? Well, it still won't kill you because you are real and the pistol is not. Thinking about suicide is painful and that anguish grinds people down. But ideation is not action and we cannot destroy ourselves with fictional bullets. Except these people did. How? Rather than a pistol, imagine a shotgun. This death would be messy, and I don't just mean gory. Pellets would bounce around everywhere, and since they're tougher and faster than anything nearby, they would get embedded in the surrounding crime scene. Tilford's folly is that crime scene. Some mystery man may have pulled a trigger in 1886, but unwinding was the shotgun, and it was fired in 2008. We could accurately term this a retrocausal effect, but unwinding is not a time machine. It is art, and art has fewer rules. Look at the parallels. These deaths were all staged in an open, natural space. No victims were local to Orner's Crossing, but we know about their lives. The same cannot be said of the perpetrator in 1886 or Anna Bojarski. With those gaps in her student record, we have no biographical information, no photos, no known address. The only thing left is the developer's imaginary shotgun, an infinite supply of conceptual ammunition, and a cluster of plot holes where people used to be. Don't look in the chamber. This show may not end with a literal bang, but it definitely ends. Dr. Michelle Wilkes, Department of Pataphysics. Thank you for listening to SCP-4784, Nature Abhors a Vacuum Tube. If you enjoyed this SCP, please like and subscribe, and follow the link in the description of the SCP Wiki, and vote to support it and the SCP Wiki as a whole. Whistlestap has joined the chat. Stake shift. Yo. Whistlestap. Hi. What happened to the old server? Fried it. Opsec, you can call this back channel too? I'm kind of surprised you bothered. 
You could easily have pretended this never happened. Nope. Quid pro quo. You help trick the janitors, and I owe you. Otherwise, mission complete. Black box sealed. Problem solved. Are you kidding? Nothing was solved. What about your mentor? Felix was murdered. Then he wasn't. I'm having a hard time with that, but it's done. You should try to move on. Can't. There's a ton of loose ends. Such as? Did you ever go back to Deer College? Haven't set foot in three ports since 2008. Not even to destroy evidence? Nope. Old flesh is dead. Couldn't risk being recognized. How many pictures of unwinding in the Stark album? Three. You're sure? Duh. I put them there. Okay. What happened to Kip's dog? Ben, the yellow lab. IDK. Maybe he wandered off, got lost. Poor old guy. You said every detail was important, so how did the blind dog get outside when all the doors were closed? That's a good question. Plot hole, maybe? Ugh. I can't even tell if you're joking. Actually, for that matter, when we planned this spy shit, you said there was no historical or cultural precedence in the crossing. Did you forget about the murder right there in Tilford's Folly? With the perp in a painting no one has ever seen? The what and where? You've lost me. Wait, you actually don't know? Felix Kipp never told you about Tilford's Folly. What the fuck is Tilford's Folly? 